Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is... Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm the host, Brady Huggett. The guest for today's show is Kari Stephenson, the uh, the founder and CEO of Decode Genetics. I'd interviewed Kari before, I, I mean, maybe a decade ago, um, and, and a short one just for an article on, on Decode. In that interview, I remember him calling Iceland a, um, a small, dark, wet rock in the North Atlantic. And for some reason, that always made me want to visit the country. And uh, by chance, I, I was, well, not by chance, by planning, I was going to visit the country at the end of December 2014. And I got in touch with Kari and convinced him to let me bring audio equipment. And we did the podcast in Decode's offices in Iceland. Yeah, so uh, the conversation, we, we talked about founding Decode. Um, we talked a, a lot about science and, and art. Uh, Kari, when he was young, was sure he was going to be a writer. He said his, his father was a writer. Um, Iceland is a, is a country that really prizes... Uh, literature. Uh, we talked about Bobby Fischer, his relationship with Bobby Fischer, the, the chess great who spent his last last years in Iceland. We talked about genetics, obviously. Interesting conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I thoroughly enjoyed Iceland. You should go if you, if you can. So that's it. I will talk to you guys on the other side, but here it is uh, for now, your First Rounders podcast with Kari Stephenson. Is Franz Wright? Do you know him? He's the no. he got Pulitzer Prize in poetry probably two thousand and four. He, I read he is the he is the son of James Wright, who got Pulitzer Prize in poetry in nineteen fifty eight. Uh-huh. He is a spectacular poet. He is a is an unusual man. So is that your favorite poet? Then? Yeah, he is the, my favorite poet of all times. He is a he is a great poet. And then when you when you read non-poetry, are you reading fiction, or are you reading almost solely fiction? Yeah. So, I, I, not not entirely. I, I've been reading a little bit. Of, I read a little bit on, on non-fiction, but the ratio of fiction to non-fiction is probably eight to one. Yeah. So, let's talk about you growing up in Iceland, and and I want to start with: um, Did you always feel like you were going to go into medicine? No, and, never. And especially was, because your 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 parents. Are no, both I was artistic. supposed to become. Uh, I was supposed to become a writer. I was absolutely convinced I would become a writer. And uh, there are all kinds of reasons for that. My father was a writer, mm-hmm. but also because in Iceland at that time the great writer had almost the status of a pop star. They were the the people everyone admired. Yeah. Uh, and it was sort of a coincidence. I went into medicine. A friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine, and a classmate in the gymnasium, he, uh, Stefan Karlsson, who is now a professor at the University of Lund, uh-huh. he was determined to go into medicine. And since I was sort of a little bit lost, not certain what I wanted to do in university, he convinced me to go with him and we applied for, for medical school. But be- because you knew you could write on the side all the time, you were going to. I haven't the faintest school? idea why no. I had Stefan convinced me to go into medicine. I just did it. Yeah, and uh, it was a, the medical school was a fairly tough school at the university. You had to work very hard, and 
I was fairly competitive and I did, did very well in the beginning and I continued to do well, so I just finished medical school. And then all of a sudden I was, I'd graduated from medical school and I decided for whatever reason to go into neurology and I ended up at the University of Chicago where I stayed for 15 years. But so were you, were you practicing medicine here first? Were you seeing patients in yeah, I, I No, I, I really didn't see patients here, I, or only as a medical student. Uh-huh. I went straight after medical school ah. to to uh, to the no I, I no I finished internship I finished internship in Iceland and then I went to the University of Chicago for training in neurology and I finished training in neurology and neuropathology I'm board certified in both and then I stayed on the faculty of the University of Chicago for many years. But how did you get to Chicago? What why Chicago? Did you? It, 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 there are all kinds of coincidences. I just applied for for a residency uh-huh. there, and I was accepted, and I went there. But that's the only place you applied for residency? It was the only place where oh. I applied at that time, because I, I didn't know how sure. how to do this. I was just yeah. a, I was just a, a you know, recent medical graduate on a wet rock in the North Atlantic. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Chicago seemed... Um, had you been to Chicago before? Probably no, not. I hadn't been to Chicago before, but the university is a, a, has a great reputation. It's a, it's a great small university, yeah. and, and uh, I thought it looked like a good place to go to, and, and it certainly was. Yeah, what, what did you think of Chicago when you got there? Oh, I, Chicago is a great city. It it is uh, a city that is so much more interesting than its reputation would have it. Yeah. You know, it had when I was there, it had the best symphonic orchestra in the world. Mm-hmm. George Salty was the conductor. Lyric opera is and was a very very good place. Had a great art scene. It's a very beautiful place. It was a very nice place to be. I, I loved it. Uh, you know, it has this reputation of having terrible winters, but I don't think that would have bothered you. Mm. That is one of the things that I had constant. I was constantly correcting. People thought because I came from Iceland that I was accustomed to this really, really cold temperatures, but I wasn't. Huh. I had never experienced temperature like in Chicago before I came there, because the, the climate here in Iceland is relatively temperate. This is an island in the middle yeah. of the ocean, yeah. and the Gulf Stream from the Bay of Mexico comes up and warms the, warms up the country. But the cold winters really didn't bother me. The really hot summers were more difficult to begin with. I agree with you. With yeah. the humid, uh, hot. Yeah. But but the University of Chicago is is such a lovely place, such a cohesive, small university. It was it was a great privilege to be there. And so I, I was speaking with um, Cindy Bailey from Arch. Yes. And and she said that that's where she met you was at the University of Chicago. Yes. And that you were running a small lab in the basement. There, while you were also seeing also seeing patients, yes, and you know, I, I, I was when I was in training, I, I had a small lab in the basement of the hospital, so I, I worked very hard. What, what were you doing in the lab? I was, I was studying all kinds of of uh, things. I was working on on mostly focused on on myelination oligodendrocytes, uh-huh. trying to figure out the role that uh, dysfunction of oligodendrocytes play in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. Uh-huh. He, I was mainly interested in glial cells and the nervous system and uh, did all kinds of experiments with that. And eventually your, your lab grew so that you had postdocs beneath you, no? Yes, yes. I, I, w- once I became a faculty member, I, I recruited in all kinds of people who were postdocs and, and graduate students. And was that like. was that sort of unusual for the time? No, no. it wasn't unusual. It was uh, you know the the physician scientist concept was uh, was basically dominating biomedical research. So it was it was a part for the course. And when you were so you were seeing patients at, in Chicago. Yes. Yeah. And was was that helping inform your research? I think it didn't help all that much to inform our research, but it was a source of inspiration. Uh, and um, I also simply liked to be a physician. I loved to see patients. Huh. How come? Uh, because occasionally you had an opportunity to help people. Uh, occasionally you run into interesting characters. The most interesting things in the world are people. Yeah. There are people who came and told you stories. 
I mean, there was this uh, old woman from Wisconsin who came to me twice a year, and she always came with a big bag of potatoes. She, her husband was a farmer, and, and she always, when she came and see me, she, she brought me something from a farm. And, and I, I sort of liked it. it was, uh, yeah. I had a connection with the community. I also like to teach. It was great fun to... I was a neuropathologist, and, and I handled what we call brain cuttings. Every week on Fridays, we took the most interesting case of the week. We analyzed it. It was at a clinical pathological conference where medical students, residents, and professors came. Uh-huh. We went over the cases, and we ended up cutting the brain. It, there was a lot of interesting features and, and was a lot of things that I liked about being a physician, teacher, scientist at the University of Chicago, but then I became a little bit tired of it. This is how you got to Harvard, right? Then I moved to Harvard, and, and uh, as, as soon as I came there, I... Well, but first, how did you... Did Harvard recruit you? Did you, you know, were you looking it, to was a, There was a friend of mine who became was recruited to become the chairman of neurology at the Beth Israel Hospital, mm-hmm. and he recruited me to handle the neuropathology. And, and uh, I went there, but as soon as I came there, I, it became obvious to me that I had become a little bit tired of uh, American academia. So I sat down and I cooked up this idea of putting together a big genetics operation in Iceland, went up to Iceland, and I've been here since then. It was almost... 19 years. Yeah, but you simplify it, right? So you, what do you mean you cooked up this idea to study genomics in Iceland? I you mean, know, genetics is the study <laughs> of human diversity, mm-hmm. right? And the way in which you study human diversity in human genetics is that you're studying information that goes into the making of man and how it flows from one generation to the next. Mm-hmm. In Iceland, I was convinced I would be able to pull together the genealogy of the entire nation, all right, which we did. We have put together a computer database that has the genealogy of the entire nation going centuries back in time. So thereby, we had put together the avenue, or drawn up a map of the avenues by which the genetic information is passed from one generation to the next. But how did you do You mean you literally got a, a vial of blood from every person in this country? No. I just put together the genealogy. All right, we have a vial of blood from about 165,000 out of 320,000 people. Right, so maybe yeah, about half then. Yeah, a little bit over half, and, and that's all we need. Because we know how everyone is related to everyone else. Huh. So you can infer the sequence of those on whom you don't have blood. But if you did have blood on every single person, would that um, better your data set? It would probably better it a little bit, but not a lot. <laughs> Uh, we uh, and 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 it's amazing uh, how you see when we came here in 1996, there was no tradition in biomedical research, none at all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no tradition in work on human genetics, and we put this operation up from scratch. In basically, in a very when it comes to research, a very desolate place and. And we have been able to compete fairly effectively yeah, I would with say the so. rest of the world. Yeah. So, so we are very proud of having, having sort of put this together from, from scratch. And it has worked very nicely. And the interesting thing is that virtually no one who worked in this place had any formal training in human genetics, which I think was one of our big strengths because we approached the genetics and unbiased by anybody else's a priori assumption. But when you, you say that, that includes yourself, that right? That includes myself, of course. Yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of the mystery to me, or, or maybe just a There is no good mystery question. to it. There's nothing, there's <laughs> nothing. Biology is relatively simple. Human genetics is relatively simple. You're, you're, what, what we are basically trying to do is to figure out how the diversity in the sequence of ACGs and Ts generates human diversity. So what you need there is the ability to to develop data on diversity in the sequence, access to data on diversity in human nature, Mm -hmm. and then statistical competence to search for and establish non-chance associations between the two. If you are seeing patients, you move to Harvard, why do you decide that genomics 
or the study genetics is what you want to do, and that has not been your path. Because if you want to figure out human diversity, and and, and, uh, what motivated me was diversity in in risk of disease, Uh the only way to do it systematically is through genetics, all right? You can basically say that in the germline genome, you have man projected into an extraordinarily simple dimension, just in the strings of ACGs and Ts. Mm-hmm. And it's not just very simple, it can also be easily digitalized and therefore systematically compared. It was obvious that genetics was the way to approach this, and we have not been disappointed. Right, and, and you knew Iceland with its <clears throat> somewhat homogenous population would be a good place where you could sort of get a good... It, it, it is not... Pretty, it is a, it's a population where there is so-called founder effect, uh-huh. which means that a relatively large percentage of current population can be traced to a relatively small number of founders. Right. All right. This means that, for example, rare mutations are, if they exist in Iceland, are relatively common compared to America. For example, if we take the, one of the big breast cancer genes, BRCA2, uh-huh. there's only one mutation that is found in that gene in Iceland, and it, it has a carrier frequency of about 0.8%, all right? So 0.8% of the Icelandic population carry this mutation. I'm told that in America, the media genetics has found about 6,300 mutations in BRCA2, and the combined carrier frequency of all of those mutations is 0.2%. Mm-hmm. So it would be completely impossible to discover that gene in America. And it was discovered basically by the use of, of uh, Icelandic families, the Icelandic population. So just the structure of the population is convenient. Then all of this genealogical information is an absolute treasure. All right, The population is of very convenient size. So you can basically take everyone with a particular disease. You don't have a selection bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have been relatively willing to participate. And then the, the people working here have turned out to be a spectacular at what good they group. do. Yeah. yeah, very good group. So, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased with this decision, but I was also motivated significantly by my desire to go back home, right? Ah, okay, so I didn't I, know that. I, I may not necessarily like this place particularly, but there is a reasonably good fit between me and this place. Yeah. Because my family has been there for 1,100 years. We have become adjusted to this place. Right, so you were, you were almost uh, almost. I was drawn back by the, by the country. Right, by... Um... <laughs> not necessarily... I'm not not saying it was totally against my will. I was just drawn back. <laughs> right. um, so okay. So then you and, you... and I am completely. I, I disagree wholeheartedly uh, with uh, the statement by one very famous American writer that you can never go back home. <laughs> uh, you can go back home for sure. Yeah, um, you can. You had the idea for for decode. And you went, this is, this is what um, Cindy was telling me anyway, that you, you know, she was at Arch then, and you sort of approached her and others and said, will we be able to get funding for this company? And I also, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to locate it in Iceland. I don't want to be in, in Cambridge or something. The, the location here in Iceland was a fundamental part of the concept. That was key. Yeah. Concept. So it isn't that we want to put together a genetics company, let's place it in Iceland. The idea was, let's put together a genetics company in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And, and because one of our strengths, or the major strength, or the, 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 our major contribution we expected would be to mine the peculiarities of, of the Icelandic population. And in the beginning, that was the only story we could tell. Mm-hmm. And, and we went and we raised funds from uh, the consortium of seven venture capital firms. And we went up there. And it, you know, we started to work and, and uh, been here since then. No, it was great. I mean, this this was coinciding with the rest of, you know, what we call the genomics bubble. There's a lot of interest. Um, you guys went public by 2000, I think? Yes, that might I be think correct. it's correct. With a, I might have my numbers wrong here, but 170 million IPO or something? Yes. Um, so this this was your first company that you'd ever run. I'd be... <coughs> and the only. Yeah, I've never worked in, in any commercial enterprise. 
I had no interest in business. I only had interest in genetics. So how did you do it? I just went and we did it, all right? Yeah, that's what the thing is that if you can <coughs> tell a story, and, and I think I was relatively effective in telling the story, uh-huh. if you can tell a story and you have a reasonable idea, you can usually raise funds, and we succeeded in doing so. And um, and most of what we said that we would do, we did, all right? Which was what? What did you set out to do when the we, company started? What we basically said is what we know how to do, what we can do, is to do good genetics. So if you guys believe in the use of genetics, if you believe that genetics will have impact on healthcare, mm-hmm. we are probably a reasonable path. At the time when we put together Dequote, there was a large number of genetics companies. None of them really did any significant genetics. Myriad was founded by people who had discovered the, the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes. All right, They didn't really do any significant genetics after that. Yep. Millennium was put together uh, on the basis of genetics promise. They never did any genetics. And, and you know, the list goes on. We yep. were basically the only of the genetics company who, who ever did any genetics that's worth mentioning. So, did, you know, looking at the rest of the industry, including Millennium, there became this, um, you know, it's a lot of force, a lot of pressure on companies to develop drugs, all right? Now you actually have to have products and put them in the clinic. Mm-hmm. Did you guys feel that? That pressure where you're we felt that pressure for, for a while because the the, the problem with, with us and basically all of these companies that were founded that around this time, around the middle of the, you know, around 1995, 6, 7, yeah. 8, is that the, the genetics technology wasn't there really yet to make systematic discoveries or variants in the genome that could be taken advantage of. We were using linkets a lot, like everyone else, mm-hmm. and linkets is a very weak method for making uh, discoveries. We made some significant discoveries, but uh, they were not of the type that you can easily turn into into diagnostic tests or into drug targets. Right. So we were struggling to figure out how to do something that would allow us to raise funds. So we went into developing some drugs. We had three actually drug discovery programs ongoing that I, I think were, were reasonably good. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. And it isn't until the SNP chips basically come on market, you know, that Illumina began to market them, that yeah, we could, as I would call it, systematically do human genetics in a, in a manner that would be sufficiently predictable that it could be taken advantage of in, in, in by a commercial enterprise. So this is where, um, you know, like like those other companies that you mentioned, uh, the investors sort of turned away from these companies that were just doing genetics and they were not looking for drugs. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of how I think maybe Decode ran into some financial trouble. No, that is the financial troubles that we ran into or sort of that made, made our life particularly difficult is uh, when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt ah. because they were managing our money. We had money that would have lasted us, you know, a couple of years when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt and with them went our money. I see. So so we, we were early victims of the financial collapse of 2007, Eight. 2008, yeah. And then what happened? Your, your investors... But we, we went into Chapter 11, but uh-huh. two of our original investors refinanced the company, re-established the company, and a couple of years after it was re-established, it was bought by Amgen. That's right. So they they rebought. So these are two of your original yes. investors, right? Yeah. So they, they initially backed you, got their exit upon IPO, I would assume, yes. quite yes. successful, yeah. rebought uh, because they believed in the science for $14 million. Yeah. And then Amgen bought it for, for four hundred and fifteen. Four hundred and fifteen million dollars. Yeah. And there's another round I think you guys raised in there, maybe forty five million or something. In yeah. between No, that was that was before the IPO. Right. No, I mean after after they rebought you after bankruptcy, after chapter eleven. I think there was a round. Yeah, yeah, there was a they recapped there, there was a there was a, a small round of, of financing after that, yeah. and then, then, then Amgen bought us for And the key to the Amgen purchase was, I think you found a variant that conveyed mm-hmm. protection for Alzheimer's? 
No, I don't think that was a particular key. It is that the Amgen, Amgen, basically, the leadership of Amgen came to the conclusion that the, their, that is that is what the scarce resource in drug discovery was access to good targets. And they came to the conclusion that the best way to find and validate targets would be to the use of human genetics. Mm-hmm. They were discussing with us the possibility of collaborating on congestive heart failure when their CEO simply came to the conclusion that if they were going to use human genetics, they should buy into the best human genetics in the world, and they bought Decode. Were you interested in selling before that? I wasn't particularly interested in selling. I was interested in, in figuring out a way in which we could finance our genetics research, uh-huh. uh, research significantly. And this has turned out to be extremely good for, for us who are in this because we are interested in the science. Because we are well-funded, we have managed to have significant impact on a very large number of drug discovery programs mm-hmm. that Ambien has. We have discovered new targets for them. We have helped them to steer away from targets that were probably not particularly good. So they have cancelled some programs because of, of our work. And uh, we are having, basically on a daily basis, impact on the way in which a very large corporation that is trying to make medicines Mm -hmm. does its job. So I'm extraordinarily pleased and I feel privileged to be a part of it. Yeah, and they leave you you alone. They bought us for what we are, not because of what they want to turn us into. So they have been extremely generous. They have, we continue to sort of indulge in, in this discovery orgy that we have been in for the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they encourage us to, to continue to uh, work on process irrespective of the utility for Amgen. And I think it has served them well. Yeah, yeah, it looks like it. So do, do you feel any sort of, um, what's the word I want here? Because you formed the only biotech company in Iceland and were a scientific leader in this country, do you feel a sort of desire to bring other companies here or, or sort of expand? What, what, I, what I've been doing of late is to work on our closer relationship with the University of Iceland. Mm-hmm. They have the sort of biology center that is going to move into this building. We are going to rent some space mm. uh, next to us because we are collaborating with them a lot. We have uh, been working on much closer relationship with the only tertiary care hospital in Iceland. So I feel personally like this um, resource that our data have been turned into is really a national treasure. It doesn't belong to anyone except these people who have contributed the data. And no one owns the data because by law no one can own them. We just are custodians of the data. And we feel, or I personally feel, that it's very important to be focused on the fact that this isn't owned by anyone. It's not owned by Decode. It's not owned by Amgen. Decode and Amgen have access to this data and only access according to rules that are spelled out by our National Bioethics Committee and our Data Protection Authority. So although the commercial benefits when it comes to drug discovery is currently going to Amgen, I feel that the major benefits from all of this is coming to this nation because mm-hmm. we are, we basically have put the country on the map in science. We have. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We've been leading the world, this tiny little nation has been leading the world in in the most cutting-edge part mm -hmm. of, of human biology, which is human genetics. And, and we are very proud and we are very pleased that the Icelandic nation can claim to be a, be a leader in that field. It has never happened before that Iceland has led any field in science, and it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So we feel that we have made a contribution to a nation that lives on a wet rock in the north of Antarctica. <laughs> Your mother was a painter, or is? No. No? No. Is that, I'm, I got bad information. Yeah, you have a bad, no, no. My, uh, my father-in-law uh, was a painter, uh, a very distinguished, probably the most distinguished painter in Iceland, but he died a couple of years ago at the age of 95. Oh, man. Good genes, as they say. Uh, He's uh, born in a fishing village on the west coast of Iceland in 1917. He, um, and everyone, in the all men in the village were really the fishermen. He, he, all, all of them were basically fishermen, and somehow he Became got the idea that he wanted to become either a musician or a painter, and he became a, became a painter. It's uh, interesting where where do people get that yeah. ideas like that, especially in, in a village. Exactly. Like yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. Do you um, do you see a link between um, art and science? <clears throat> you see, the, the, one of the one of the things that I'm most focused on today in my science is to is to use genetics to try to figure out how the brain works. You see, we are sitting here in the year 2014, mm -hmm. and we haven't the faintest idea how the brain works. And remember, the brain is just an organ, all right? The kidney is an organ that makes piss. Mm -hmm. The brain is an organ that makes thoughts and emotions. And the kidney and the brain are put together from the same type of information, information that is encoded in this four-letter code of yeah. A, C, Gs, and Ts. The brain is an organ of consciousness, Right? And consciousness has two major components. Alertness, that you lose and regain at least once a day. Mm -hmm. And then the content of consciousness, which are thoughts and emotions. And our thoughts and emotions define us as a species, and they define us as individuals of the species. And we haven't the faintest idea how the brain generates a thought. We haven't the faintest idea how the brain generates emotions. We cannot even define thoughts and emotions. Philosophers have been trying to do it for centuries, and they failed. So, so how does one then, and, and you know, it is pathetic that we haven't made more progress into figuring out who we are because we are really nothing but our brains. If I would take you, peel your, the rest of your body away from your brain and keep your brain alive in a bucket, that brain would be you. Yep. If we would keep the rest of your life somewhere else, it would be It'd something be totally different. Yeah. So what we, have been, what we have been trying to do, and with... Uh, with less success than I, I wish we would have had, but then, then nevertheless tiny little measure of success is that we have been, number one, we have been uh, submitting a very large number of Iceland tests to a large number of tests of cognitive function, and we have been looking for the variants in the sequence that place us on a normal distribution curve of, of, of cognition. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we have been taking variants that affect diseases that the that affect, that, that, that predispose to diseases that, that affect uh, thought and emotion. I've been try, trying to use them to gain a little bit of insight into, into cognition. And one example of, of um, work like that is that we took a copy number variant, CNVs, large variants in the genome that predispose to schizophrenia, I've been asking the question, how, what kind of an effect do these variants have 
in individuals who have them and have not developed schizophrenia. So basically, these, these copy number variants, or these CNVs, they increase your risk of schizophrenia by a factor of 10. The population prevalence of schizophrenia is 0.6 to 1%. So those who have this, this copy number variants, let's say, have about 10% chance of developing schizophrenia, which means that 90% of them do not develop schizophrenia. And we ask the question, what impact do these variants have on those who carry them but have not developed schizophrenia? And we showed that these variants, they affect cognition, so the carriers have, have uh, abnormalities in cognition that is somewhere in between schizophrenics and controls who do not carry these variants. Uh, what does that mean? It basically means that the cognitive abnormalities in schizophrenia are not a consequence of the disease. They may actually be the cause of the disease. Mm. You think differently, and therefore you are at risk of developing schizophrenia. What makes it even more interesting is that there are several studies coming from the 70s and then even more recent studies than that that shows that in families of schizophrenics, you're more likely to find creative people than in the controlled population. Should not be necessarily be a surprise, because to be creative, you have to think differently. Right. If you leave the box in the morning, you may not be able to make it back to the box at night. Mm-hmm. You have to, have to be able to think outside of the box. If you leave the box in the morning, you may not be able to make it back in the box at night, and then you're diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Our next question was that, is, is this greater probability of finding creative individuals in family of schizophrenics, is it because the families of schizophrenics are more tolerant to thinking differently? Or is it because of schizophrenia and creativity share some biology? So what we did is that we took all of the variants that that have been shown to, to predispose to schizophrenia, we generated a risk score on the basis of that. And then we asked the question, is that the risk score for schizophrenia higher in members of uh, creative professions than in the controlled population? Creative profession, uh, the association of writers, of dancers, of composers, etc. Uh-huh. And indeed, we showed that the risk score is substantially higher in the members of the creative profession. So we had shown that there is a biological overlap between schizophrenia and creativity. And this is, this is fascinating because it basically means that uh, our ability to come up with something new, our ability to uh, write good music, to put together instruments like an iPad and an iPhone, etc., comes at a price. Yeah. price that is paid by the unfortunate individuals for whom what is strange for society becomes a devastating weakness. That leads me to, um, to Bobby Fischer. <laughs> Old Bobby. Right, so you knew him. and uh, I didn't know him. I met him several times when he, he was in Iceland. I had... Which were his remaining how many years? Ten? I don't remember how many years he lived in Iceland. They were not many. But he, he was a... He was a difficult genius, all right. He had a paranoid psychosis. He was uh, otherwise a very bright person. But he died from his paranoid psychosis. How so? He developed benign prostatic hypertrophy and ended up dying from kidney failure. He refused to have physicians help him, which would have been very easy. Yeah. But he... He was paranoid towards the physicians. He thought they were out there to get him. He died at the age of 64. Yeah. There are 64 squares on the chessboard. That's perfect. <laughs> but how did you come to, to uh, know him? I, I, there were there was some people who were making a, a documentary about Bobby Fischer uh-huh. who invited me to... Uh, Analyze him. To, to meet him and sit down with him and... And I also, our corporate counsel, our lawyer, 
Johan Hjartarsson was one of the world's best chess players. Ah, that's right, and he, he's still and, here. And he's still here, yeah. oh yes, Johan is here. And, and uh, he, you know, he for example played Kosnoy in preliminary for the world championship and beat Kosnoy handily up wow. in Seattle. And, and um, so he, he also, I think he was probably instrumental in having me sit down with Bobby, and I met him several times, and and uh, it was difficult because, I mean, he was, you know, both of his parents were, were Jewish, for example, and he was convinced that the Jews were out to get him. All right, which is, which both is, of his parents were Jewish, you're saying? Yes. And he was convinced the Jews were out to get him? Yeah, yes. Which is interesting because... Yeah. The self hatred, the self loathing, yeah. the you know, this this spectacular genius. Would would you say that um, you know that that Bobby left the box in the morning and couldn't get back in the box? I think he was straddling between the box <laughs> and and the, and the outside world. No, he. It is you know everything. Basically, there are no freelancers, all right? And you you pay a price for everything. And it's very interesting if you think about, on one hand, the people on the autism spectrum yeah. and people with ADSD, the, the, the autistic, the, the Asperger guy, has this convergent thinking, can focus extremely, extremely on very specific things, but has a very weak central cohesion has difficulties putting things in context and then you have the divergent thinker who sees nothing but their their context and this is all a question of finding a balance in your life and Bobby obviously couldn't he suffered from it all his life and ended up dying from it yeah I I I don't know where I dug that out in the research, but it was an interesting coincidence that he ended up here and you started... Yeah, no, it, I, it, it was... It's an interesting little chapter in my life to to meet Bobby and and talk to him because I was... I You know, I was a medical student in 72 when he was playing Spassky. Yeah. And I remember in the library when we were studying, we basically didn't study, we just played chess. Really? <laughs> yeah, because this was... I, you know, and everyone played chess because this was this completely swept the country, all right. And I, I had always been fairly interested in chess. Was always playing chess. You still play? Uh, occasionally, I play uh, on the internet. I try to avoid it because when I begin, I cannot stop. Why don't you play uh, Johan? I have played Johan, and that's humiliating. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> we have traveled together. I remember particularly one day when we were flying from here to Seattle, and I don't remember how many five minutes in chess games we played, and I don't remember how many I lost, but that was Asian totic to the total number. Oh, man. <laughs> um, this is back to the art and science thing. You know, I think in order to be a good artist... Um, the best artists uh, observe the world, take it in, and then put it out in some sort of form. Whether it's music, it's through dance, it's painting, writing, whatever. I, I, it, it, or you know, I mean, the good scientists and the good artists have to come up with something new. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it is probably the. I think there is probably a, a very large overlap between the premises that you have to fulfill to be a good scientist and be a good artist. There has to be a certain chaos. There has to be a certain lack of water. There has to be certain willingness to let go of the things you know, the things you have seen and the things you have heard. If you're not willing to do that, you become an extraordinarily mundane, boring artist and a particularly uninteresting scientist. And unfortunately... A very large percentage of the people who dominate art and science are boring and uninteresting. But so you're saying that? Um, I mean, you're a good scientist. Quite obviously, we'll just we're just going to say that. Um, are you saying that you have chaos in your mind that you have to apply order to in order to get the science done? I I, I think it is probably in a discussion like this. It is probably wise not to force me to pass some sort of judgment over who I am 
but I am, you know, take a look at my desk. <laughs> some stacks of stuff over there, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You, you, you have to, it, it is complicated because, you, of course, you have to, you have to be able to put some water, you have to see some water, and you have to accept some water. Uh-huh to be able to make any kind of a discovery because this world we live in is meticulously watered by nature. But to be able to see the new water, you have to let go of the old one, and you have to be willing to accept Mm -hmm. that what you're trying to do is to see something that no one has seen before, right? And, And occasionally it happens in a sort of a spontaneous poetic manner but very often it comes through hard labor and, and work yeah. and work and perseveration of of nauseating type right uh, i want to talk about your family so you have three kids i have four kids four kids yeah. two boys and two girls um three girls and, and one boy ah okay the the only thing i'm willing to say is that um you see, I'm born in the first half of last century. I'm born in 1949. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, Iceland was a poor country when I'm born. Iceland was a poor country until 1970. I, uh, in my memory, I grew up with a sort of a mostly empty stomach, except on Christmas, mm-hmm. until I became a teenager, right? Uh, and men of that era were supposed to be first and foremost providers mm-hmm. for the family. And uh, I probably worked extremely hard and I was probably less available to my children when they were growing up than I would have, than I would want today mm-hmm. because I was so focused on my career, so focused to do what men were supposed to do. I put my children to bed at night when I was at home. I read to them books, but I did not spend enough time with them. That's basically one of my biggest regrets. It is the biggest regret when I look back now, not to have found more time for my children because I was so focused on on, um, on my career. Why in the hell have children if you, if you don't spend time with them? That's a great question. Yeah, mm. no, but I, that it's probably the times were different, all right? Um, I think that, the, and I know that my children spend much, much more time with their children than I did. And I have five grandchildren and the six on the way. So, so I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced that, uh, I'm pretty convinced that, sort of. As parents, we are becoming a little bit better than we were. As a people, you say. Yeah. yeah. As parents, yeah, we are yeah. becoming a little bit better. And do you, do you get a chance to see the grandchildren? Yes, yes, I do. Oh. I do. So that's a that's probably a big. Yeah, I, I I spent yesterday afternoon with uh, my three granddaughters, so I get to see them now. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it is. Um, I want to ask you yeah. one more thing. Um, you know, as you said, Iceland sort of brought you home. Right, you, you mm-hmm. were sort of feeling a homesickness to come here, and, and you grew up in this country. How do you think that um, growing up in Iceland shaped you, shaped your work ethic, or shaped? Um... I I think we are. I think that we are, that genetics shapes us enormously. All right, and Iceland has shaped the genetics of the people who live here. It has had major impact on who we are. And let me give you two examples of that. First of all, when uh, there is a there is a book, old book called the Book of Settlement that was written a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. that says that Iceland was settled by Norwegian Vikings who stopped by an island and picked up slaves and came home. We did a large study of the genetic anthropology of Iceland. So we we looked at the the Y chromosomes as markers of paternal lineage and the mitochondria as markers of maternal lineage. And we showed that 75% of Icelandic Y chromosomes today are Norwegian, and about 70% of Icelandic mitochondria are Celtic. Mm. 
So Iceland was settled by Norwegian boys who went to the British Isles, picked up women, went up to Iceland to settle down. The next thing we did was that we took DNA from skulls from the time of the settlement of Iceland, and we looked at the same genetic markers. And it, <coughs> it turns out that they, these, the distribution of these genetic markers from the skulls from the settlement of Iceland are much more in keeping with current-day Norwegians mm-hmm. and current-day Celts than they are with current-day Icelanders. So by living here in, on, in this really merciless little island, we have been changed more than the people who are living in countries where there has been a continuous stream of people coming from other countries. So, so Iceland, the weather, the volcanic corruption, the hunger, the starvation, the difficulties have changed us more. And, and quicker, you're saying. And quicker, yeah. yes. So we are more different from our ancestors than the people who lived in, in Great Britain, where there has been a continuous stream of, of, of people coming through. So this country has changed us dramatically, all right? I can give you another example. That is, when we started to look at the genetics of uh, malignant melanoma, mm-hmm. there was a one mutation known to uh, affect the risk of uh, melanoma. It's a mutation in the melanocortin type 1 receptor, which triples the risk of, of the cancer in Spain, doubles it in Sweden, has no impact, no impact on the risk of malignant uh, uh, melanoma in Iceland. And there's really no surprise. It's the mutation that turns your hair red and makes you sensitive to sunlight. And if you're sensitive to sunlight and you live in Iceland, I can assure you, you can avoid sunlight. (laughs) And and what is interesting is that the frequency of this mutation is 6% in Spain, 17% in Sweden, and 26% in Iceland. All right? So we have been, when I say, I don't think that growing up in Iceland, for me personally, had enormous impact on who I am. I think that I probably inherited almost everything in the way in which I look at life. But what I inherited had been shaped by this country over 1,100 years. So I am a product of this country. I'm a product of 1,100 years of the history of this country, all right? And I'm absolutely convinced that I'm distinct because of that from a very large percentage of the people I worked with in the state. I want to emphasize that I'm very grateful for the 20 years I spent in the state. The American academic environment was extremely generous to me, Mm -hmm. and for that I'm grateful. But I was always a visitor always on the way back home. Huh. It just took longer time than I thought. Yeah, so you never felt at home is what you're saying in, in, I, in the I, U.S.? I felt very comfortable there, but it was never at my home. home. Yeah, I was always on the way back. And, uh, but two of my children lived there. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. One of them was six months of age when she came here. The other was born in America. So even though I'm back home, I have a significant bond with America. I have two daughters and, and soon three grandsons who are Americans. So I'm by birth, yeah. By birth. Yeah. I mean, you know, they and you know will probably live there all their lives. So I'm not indifferent to the way in which you idiots behave. <laughs> <laughs> That's been a fun talk. I, I appreciate it. Um one one more question. It, and sort of puts you on the spot, but do you have, um, if you were going to recommend me one book of fiction to read, what would it be? I've been reading Icelandic, I've been reading Icelandic uh, books recently. Why don't you buy yourself Independent People by Laxness? Okay. Uh, who got the Nobel Prize in Literature six or seven. And it is, um, there's a very good translation. Actually, it was a translation that was reviewed by by Anne Prue yep. and Jane Smiley. Yeah. Both of them uh, reviewed it. And it's interest, interesting, both of them started to write in Iceland. They came and became students at, at the University of Iceland. Annie Prue did? 
Yes. I didn't know that. Uh, as, as the study tells uh, Icelandic for foreigners. So so I feel that we own a little piece of both of them. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, if, if I were you, I would also, because you live in New England, I would get a book by Franz Wright called Walking to Martha's Vineyard. Okay. Which is a, a spectacular book of small poems. And, and as a writer, you have to read poetry because it trains you in in more abstract use of language. And prose is never particularly interesting unless you use abstraction a little bit. And there, there is a, there's a, there's a famous Canadian literary critic by the name of Northrop Fry. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of him? No. He wrote, for example, a book called Fearful Symmetry, which is uh, his his uh, treatment of William Blake, and and he was he was he was always trying to convince the authorities in Canada to put more emphasis on literature in the school system, and his argument, his reason for that was that, uh, as I said in the beginning, that language is the equipment to use to think with. Mm-hmm. And the only way to train the use of language in such a way that you can use it in a in a novel manner is to read good literature. <laughs> That's perfect. And, I, and for me, it has been the perfect excuse for spending so much time on reading. <laughs> how was how was that? Not to um, sound like I'm on the the board of tourism for Iceland, but does that not make you want to visit Iceland or, or live there for a little while? I mean, it definitely it definitely did me. Uh, thanks to Kari Steffensen for having us into his office and for taking the time for the, the to record the podcast. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music. Thanks to listeners, as always, because without listeners, podcasts would not exist. You can find us on Nature Biotechnology's podcast homepage, including the, including the full archives. There's... Um, Who's on there? Henri Tamir is there. Uh, Bill Hazeltine is there. Lee Hood is there. Luna Ryan is there. Um, a bunch more. You can also find us on iTunes, and you can find us on Stitcher. And you can find us on our next podcast, which is uh, coming up. I will talk to you then. Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.